With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Kyle Kadakia is the founder of ClassPass, a company that lets you book fitness classes at a bunch of different studios for a set price each month. More than 30 million reservations have been made on her platform since she started the company in 2013. ClassPass's last round of financing valued the company at about $400 million. But growing ClassPass to this point hasn't been easy, and Kadakia recently made the tough decision to step down as CEO. The impact we have on people's lives, to me, is more important than any title anyone can carry. And, you know, the one thing, the only thing, and I thought a lot about this, was I want little girls to believe that they can be CEOs. The best thing I could do, though, is be an empowered female and an authentically doing what I love. She told us all about founding the company and how she pivoted a struggling startup idea into something really big on this episode of Success, How I Did It. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. We have Pyle Kadakia here with us today. She created ClassPass. First, let's go back. You're a world-class dancer, right? I mean, you've been dancing since you were little, and that's part of what inspired yeah. you to do this company. Yeah, I started dancing when I was three years old in my basement with my mom's best friend. And uh, it was sort of my way of getting to know my culture, but it also became more than that for me. It became this place where I felt like I could be anyone. I felt really centered. I loved it. Dance became this thing that I fought to keep in my life throughout my career, through my college years because I just felt so alive and so confident when I did it, and so I never wanted to lose it. You have both sides of your brain going. You also went to MIT. My parents, you know, immigrated here in the 70s. Like, education, a good career were obviously, like, North Stars for them. And, you know, at the same time, I wanted the discipline. I wanted to make sure I, like, entered the real world in the right way. I loved math and science, so that was sort of, like, the other side of me, and my creative side was really in dance and choreography. What kind of dance? So it's Indian folk and classical dance. (laughs) When I was in school, especially at MIT, like I even wanted to dance there, so I went and started a dance company that's still on campus today. It's just, for me, when I felt like it didn't exist, I created it. So when I left MIT and I came here to New York, you know, I had my job at Bain, and the first thing I did when I got here was look for where I was going to go take Bollywood dance classes. During my Bain days, like I would invite my entire company to my shows. You know, it was just like one of those things that I think made me pile and everyone kind of associated me with it. When I was, I would say, entering like, you know, my third year of Bain, most people at that point decide what they're going to do after and either they stay at Bain or they go to business school. It's usually the trajectory. I wanted to find a way to dance more and to build something that was, you know, just something more relevant and 
in the Indian dance space. I took a great job at Warner Music Group. I got to see the entire music industry transform and got to meet amazing people like Daniel Eck at Spotify. I was sort of doing that like my day job and every night for like four hours I would dance with a group of girls that also were like professionals and amazing at their jobs. And we would travel on the weekends and go and perform. And I always remember we ended up on the cover of the art section of the New York Times. And this was like two years into my Warner experience and maybe six months into when I started the company. I didn't even have a website. I remember my boss was like, are you going to come to work tomorrow? <laughs> like, I don't know. I think I saw you on the cover of the you know art section of the New York Times. I love moments like that because it, it makes you just realize like you can do so much and accomplish so much if you're focused and passionate about what you do. When we first met, you had joined something called Techstars. Yep. And was this, it was called Classivity at the time, was your startup. Yep. And it was a variation of what ClassPass is now. But was that the first company you had, I guess you started the dance company, but that was your first experience with tech. Outside of like, you know, building some small models and algorithmic programs at MIT, I really hadn't built something of that kind of scale. And the reason I did it was, you know, I was one day sitting at my desk, I was looking for a ballet class to take, and I was online and like hours had passed by and I didn't choose what I would do. And at that moment, I was just like, why is this so difficult? Why is there not a website like OpenTable or SeamlessWeb or ZocDoc that was just aggregating all this information? And that made sense. I think it made sense to a lot of people because I raised a million dollars on that concept. And so then when we launched it and no one went to class, that was really hard for me because that was my mission. My mission wasn't to build just a tech website that like looked nice and had all the information. It was to get people to actually go to class and pursue their passion and fall back in love with a hobby like I had with dance. I realized that we weren't creating that impact. And so when I came to terms with that, I decided that we should pivot. So before we get to the pivot, though, let's yep. talk about you. You leave Warner, right? Yes. You joined Techstars. How do you get into Techstars? Techstars was this accelerator kind of program yeah. where startups would apply and it was really rigorous. It was hard to get into. David Tisch, who's a big venture capitalist in the New York area, was yep. running it. How did you wind up there yeah. doing this? I had this idea brewing in my head. And the vice chairman of Warner Music Group, Michael Fleischer, called me. He was like, why don't you come to my office? Like, I'd love to hear about this. And I had maybe met him three times in my three years there. Ended up spending two hours like, explaining to him what I wanted to build. And he was like, you know what? Like, I love this. He became my investor. And he also was one of the mentors in the Techstars program. So he emailed David Tisch that day. To me, it was about relationships. I mean, I know I did the application and all of it. I really, truly believe, though, I got in because people referred me. And I always tell, like, entrepreneurs this, like, yes, it's about your application. They're going to get thousands. But find a way to really get, like, a good reference, right, or get someone to support you into the program. And I know I had a lot of people who were vouching for me and being like, I believe in Pile. I believe in this idea. And I really believe it's because of that. This company that you were building in Techstars, Classivity, it's an open table for, for classes. So you could go on and you could see, okay, I want to take a Pilates class. Here are the places and the times. It was be active and be creative. So it had fitness stuff on there. It also had like creative stuff on there, like cooking classes and photography. And basically you could go on, you could search by genre, then you could pick the time and then you could, you know, pick the location and then we would show you all the schedule. So even though it was a different product, it actually helped us during that time build all the integrations into getting all the schedule data. It wasn't easy to do that. I mean, you know, there's so many classes happening all day long 
And we were trying to pull in the feed of information to say, here's all the up-to-date information on what's available at every given time. Even though it was like a phase of the company where the product didn't work, it actually did help us build a lot of the scheduling integration that we need to on the back end. So Techstars has this demo day. You're presenting to a room full of investors and journalists and things. I was in the audience yeah. listening to you present. Um, so long ago. What happened after that? Did the money come easily? Was it a bit of a slog? I know you had two different co-founders, I think, at the time. Yeah. When you have the hype of something like Techstars, it definitely gives you some, you know, it gives you some clout. But at the end of the day, like we didn't have the numbers. It was a moment for me to go back to my mission. I decided that we would let go of certain people. We would focus on the company on like pivoting and iterating, which was like a hard decision to do. But what was the point of keeping a product up and funding that when it's like not working? Because people weren't booking classes or there were no users or what was the problem? They were coming and looking at the schedule data, but they weren't actually purchasing the classes. So they weren't actually going to class. And we kept changing like the buttons. I think the day I knew is when we like we sent out an email saying like go to class for free and still no one went. I think the most transformative companies are ones that like actually change human behavior. And so while I had made it easy to go and search, I hadn't motivated anyone to go to class. So you decide you need to make this change, but you raise a little bit of money after Techstars. And then I think according to countries at least, two years later, you raised your next round. During that first year and a half, like we raised roughly around a million plus after Techstars. I mean, we were good about our burn, right? So I had enough cash in the bank. I mean, that was one of my important points to even my team when they were like, wait, why are we switching? It's like, we have money right now. Like, you know, like the worst thing you could do is wait for it to run out and with the wrong product. Like we actually had enough like stamina and ad- enough like funding to kind of go through the next, you know, year But it was more of like, are we going to make the hard decisions to get and build a product that was going to actually get us to the next round of funding? So you guys start building this other product and you run a promotion, right? And something changes. What we ended up doing is, okay, let's go talk to these studio owners and figure out what they wanted. And what we realized a lot of them were offering a first class for free. So what we did is we packaged up the first classes for free and built a product called the Passport, which was a one month offering where people could go and try all these first classes for free as a new customer. And the bet we were making is, okay, people are going to do this and then go back and buy a package at these studios. So we were collecting ratings and reviews on every single rating and class that you went to. And, you know, my internal benchmark was 70% of people who gave something a positive rating would go back. And we weren't seeing that. We were seeing like 10 to 15% of people go back, which to me was while it was great revenue for us and people were finally going to class and it was beautiful profit, it wasn't a good business model. I didn't want to build a one-month experience for my customers. I wanted to build a lifestyle where you stayed active and passionate. And for the business owners, I was actually not sending them any money. So when I fast-forwarded that in terms of, like, the business, in terms of the product, we had to make another hard decision of saying this is wrong. When we actually looked at the data, we saw that so many customers were actually buying the membership over and over again with different email addresses, which gave us some sort of sense of maybe this is a monthly subscription We also did a survey, and 95% of them said they wanted to do this experience over and over again. And that was visiting different studios around you. So the variety was like a part of the magic. And we almost like stumbled upon that, how important that was. And it wasn't just like a one-month discovery thing. It was a part of people's way of life. We had a meeting, and we were like, okay, there's something here. And we decided to iterate and build the subscription model as well. So we had the search engine up, the passport and the and the class fast model up at this time. And you know, the team we all were sitting there and we're kind of like, okay, what what do we do? But we started getting such positive 
feedback on the subscription. People were now emailing me with things that were about like their life changing because of this product and they felt confident. It wasn't even about like I went and worked out, you know, it was something bigger. And I think as an entrepreneur and a founder who had been doing this for like three and a half years and I did it because of my passion for dance, I felt like I had given them dance, like what dance was to me. In that moment, I just knew we kind of had hit that magic and that lightning that was going to be like revolutionary for that industry. So you all took this product out to studios without it even like really formed, right? You said, we're going to start doing this this thing. It's going to be $49 a month for unlimited classes? 49 was 10 classes. For 10 classes. And you could do bar classes. You could do Pilates classes. You know, before, I think maybe the assumption was you're going to join a gym or you're going to be into yoga or you're going to be into bar. Commitment but not, to one studio. Right, right. But not combining, like cherry picking what you wanted to do based on how you felt and how you wanted to work out that day. I mean, and to be honest, technologically it was hard to do it because how are you going to look at all the information? And then also it just wasn't a concept anyone had really done. If you wanted to be a dabbler, you would probably have a gym membership because it was too expensive to do that, actually doing it for with the studios. So talk about how you get the pivot off and running, how you talk to investors about it, how do you talk to your team about it, how do you plant the flag and say, okay guys, Classivity was cool, but now we're going to be ClassPass and we're yeah. going to do this whole new thing. Well, so um, we had actually put ClassPass out before we changed our name. It, basically what happened is we decided that we would try this other iteration, which would be the membership, which we launched in June of 2013. Three months in, we started seeing this exponential growth with ClassPass and it was like completely viral. We went from like 35 users to like 300 you know what I mean in a matter of three months and like that's exponential growth you mean 35,000 no I'm talking about like hundreds I'm talking about like really small numbers oh wow right like actually 35 35 people in our first month I always say that too because people want these bigger numbers but we're building a subscription and a lifestyle and you need to figure out what what your numbers are going to be and for us when we got to a thousand members we were at a million dollar run rate so to me that's like what I was trying to get to right when you have a hundred dollar subscription that's what you're aiming for what was so great is we saw the growth of ClassPass surpass the passport. And I mean, Classivity as a search engine. And so what we ended up doing is in February of the following year, changing our name to ClassPass, rebranding. We shut down the search engine. We took out the passport. And I actually remember one of my advisors, Andrew Weinrich, he always would say to me, just get rid of the passport. Like He could see this. You know, we kind of were like, well, it's like what gave us the variety and maybe people want the passport and then we'll do ClassPass. And Um, He was like, it's like crack to you guys. It'll be a chapter in your book. And I didn't fully understand at that moment what that meant. And now I totally understand what he meant. Sometimes you just have to be able to know that it's the wrong product and move on. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops 
and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What was the initial thing that you offered to users as this new company? With ClassPass, it was $99 for 10 classes. We had about 50 studios in New York City, probably signed up at the time. And 99 was a steal when you consider that a spin class around here in New York City costs, yeah. what, $30 a session at least? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, we weren't working with a lot of the top tier studios. Like, these were a lot of, like, I would say, you know, like studios that were had a lot of excess capacity, weren't really big names. I think we got the big names as the product kept growing, which was also a part of like the fun war stories that we have. Like we didn't in the beginning have contracts with all the studios, but we realized like the brand names mattered. So we were like fulfilling a lot of these reservations manually without any integrations, just to see like we needed to figure out what the customer wanted. That's like the ultimate thing. That's what you need to do. You need to keep figuring out what the customer really wants. And we didn't know. You had the tricky job of having two sets of customers, right? You had yep. studios that you have to make happy that you're partnering with, that you're paying checks to every month based on referrals. And you have people like me who yeah. use ClassPass and are signing up for classes and want the best prices. This is a problem that like Uber has the same thing with keeping drivers happy, keeping yeah. customers happy. It's very hard to balance the two. So how did you figure that out? And did you ever make mistakes with it? One of the things that was really important to me, it's actually something I studied at MIT, which was like management of inventory and capacity utilization. And we never wanted to cannibalize. And so what we were trying to do is figure out where they had excess capacity, right? And that was something we built into the system from the beginning of saying, we're going to make available the spots that you're not selling. So this is incremental revenue, right? And so that was a really important part of like our value proposition for the beginning. And we also restricted how many times you could go to anyone's studio for that purpose as well. It was a matter of protecting. If you want to be a loyalist, we were like, please go sign up at the studio. Like this product is not for that person. Right, but you couldn't do all 10 classes at the same studio. You can't, right. That was part of like the premise of getting you to say like, let's just get people who actually were scared to work out. And we wanted to make it accessible for people to say yes. So then obviously a lot of our partners would have more inventory utilized and the classes would be more energetic and full. So that was really the premise it was like started under and uh, maintained under. Obviously, as we grew, we had to keep figuring out what those like inventory limits were and, you know, continue to build algorithms for our studio owners that kept optimizing their revenue. And we're still working on that. I mean, what's amazing is how much data we have to be able to now predict, you know, if you changed your schedule around, you would get this much more money. Like those are the things we can do for our partners now because we have so much data historically on how many, you know, their 8 p.m. class on a Wednesday sells out. How hard was it the first few years? And were investors actually interested in it? Did you find that it was hard to pitch them at first? I think I had a lot of people who were like, pile, like, we love you, but like, product's not there or like, business isn't there. I never gave up though. I mean, I think that's as a founder and entrepreneur, you just keep hustling through it. I knew I'd figure it out. And as long as like, you don't run out of money, which is the number one key, you're, you, that's like your right to keep going. You have to keep making hard decisions. Like, I, I remember I needed a bridge round. And people were like, of course, because they were seeing... Explain what a bridge round a is? Bridge, so I needed, like, an extra 300K to kind of stitch between 
um, where I was with my capital and where I wanted to go, and I wasn't ready to go into a big round. And so it was awesome because I think people were just like, your progress. I always say investors invest in lines, not dots. And I was like giving them so many dots that were like so much better than the last time I had seen them. And I was keeping people in the loop. For me, the reservation number and the, our revenue trajectory, like I remember just sending charts of like the hockey stick to people. And so many of my investors, when I remember when they were like, when you texted me that, it was like, oh my God. You know, I remember sitting down with like Haley from Birchbox, you know, and I was like, here's what it looks like. And she was just like, show me that again, you know? And I feel like that was when I knew we had cracked something that was like really special. And that was like January of 2014. I had investors emailing me saying, I've seen you write about Payal before. Do you know her? And can you intro me? That you had this serious demand that cooked up. I mean, VCs are kind of like, they're like, ooh, what's the new, next shiny yeah, thing? I have to get right, into this hot deal. And right. you were, you became that hot deal. Yeah. So what was it like when you hit that inflection point? Did you notice a change? Or like, how do you deal with that as a founder? I did notice the change. I remember like going out to raise my Series A and ending up with multiple term sheets when I had gone to Silicon Valley, probably like four times at that point and come back with nothing. This is when I met Fritz, and I was like, Fritz is the type of person I want involved in my company. And Fritz Landman is your now CEO. He's the CEO of ClassPass. It was one of those moments when I met Fritz, like I knew he believed in my mission. I was meeting all these people who I know are now chasing me because they saw traction, but I didn't know if they believed in my mission. And it's really hard to figure that out in three days when everyone's like, let's sign a term sheet tomorrow. And I had that struggle, and I remember, you know, Fritz and I chatted about it, and he was very much helping me with the fundraise. And I was like, I just don't know if I trust any of these folks, you know, and I don't know them and and I want the chance to get to know them. So I have multiple data points with them, right? The same way they now have multiple data points on me, it didn't feel fair. And so Fritz was like, you know what, I think I can get you the capital. So then he ended up leading my Series A and getting more involved in the company. And I said no to some really great people who actually got involved in the company in later rounds. You know, you've had to make some tough decisions throughout the course of the company's growth and history. Yep. One of them is the pricing has changed. Yep. And it hasn't always been well received by users. Yeah. There's yeah. been some screaming on Twitter and things like that. So yeah. there was this 99 beautiful price point for a long time where, I think, was it unlimited classes or am I making it, that up? It was up? unlimited for a bit. Yeah. So for $99, you could get unlimited classes. Um, so people were going to like literally a class every day sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it was a huge discount, like because like I said, thirty dollars could get you one spin class normally. Yeah. Um, and then you change prices, yep. sort of seemingly out of the blue. Yeah. What did you? How did you make that decision? Why did you make it? And were there mistakes made? It was nine nine dollars for ten in the beginning, and we were getting data, and people weren't were only going to five. Like that was like the original number, right? And it was this amazing thing where you know my CFO and I would always chat about this. He's like, you know, people die for engagement. We have, like, too much engagement now. It, it was this interesting thing where everything I had set out in the world to do from, like, this moment I started this company was, like, coming true from a product and consumer perspective. But it was breaking the business, right, in the sense of, like, we didn't know what the, how much people would work out. No one had ever done this before. I had no blueprint. The only way to actually test this was in a real-life test. And so the first thing we did is we increased price. We didn't know where usage would settle. And, you know, it wasn't the right price. And then we actually realized as we were increasing price of Unlimited, I was shutting out a part of the market that I actually wanted in the market. This product was meant for people to be accessible. And we were making it less accessible over time. So then we started launching the lower tiers. And as we started launching the lower tiers, the Unlimited tier even deteriorated more in terms of its profit. And so by lower tier, you mean a cheaper amount for fewer classes. Exactly. Some people, they were like, I want to go to class, but they were like, I can do this for $50. But when Unlimited started going, we had to keep increasing the price on that. The value proposition was changing and the type of customer was changing. 
that's when, you know, we saw the success of the lower tier products and we were like, okay, these are great. People love them as much as they loved the unlimited product. And so we had to make the hard decision to sunset our unlimited plan. But that being said, we also made sure that, a few things I would say, we made sure that we grandfathered a lot of them into like having 10 classes per month because we wanted them to keep trying it. And we also introduced bundles so you could keep going to class and we made like the UI as simple as possible. And we just launched video on demand too. And that was a very important thing for me as a founder to be like, we're going to give you a way to work out every day because that's what our premise is. We don't want to say like to be fit, you need to have lots of money. Like that is not the premise we started the company under. So you go through all this, um, you've changed the price, you figure it out, you, you've iterated. Three. And how many markets are you in? We're in 39 cities globally. Okay. And how many users? We're, we're past 30 million reservations since we've launched ClassPass. So 2013. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Great. Wow. Yeah. That's tremendous growth. And so much so that a slew of copycats came out. <laughs> yeah. There's all these people that- That was an interesting phase. So how do you deal with that as a founder when you've got something successful that's working, um, that's hot, and then all these copycats come out and undercut your price or try yeah. to? I mean, you know, it was an interesting phase in the company. I believe you win a race by looking forward, not behind. It became a little hard. There was this phase where I feel like every day I would like get to you know my desk and the team was talking about it and people were talking about it. And so we were like, all right, like this is this is ours to lose. That's sort of how I felt. So I think we just knew we had to, you know, take on the market and expand rapidly and we did that. We went to uh, twenty cities in a matter of six months. Are you guys making money? We're on track to be profitable. Okay. Yeah. So how do you balance that? How do you balance how much to charge someone versus what it does to your bottom line? And how do you decide like when to toggle things? I mean, I think we've now priced our product in a, in a way that is sustainable for the company and it's great value for our customers. And at the same time, we're also innovating on the partner side to you know partner with them in terms of dynamic pricing. And you know, we've always had like this one payment one price for every class that we've paid the studios. And we've also started figuring out like what are ways we can even drive them more traffic with different prices. So we're also experimenting on that side of it. But at the end of the day, like for us, it's really, we have now realized like what the usage sort of looks like on the plans that are capped, which are easier than having obviously like an unlimited number of classes you can go to. One other thing, as you were growing, a lot of people asked the question of Groupon. They said, you know, this has been kind of done before where you get this great bargain to go into a new place. Uh, Groupon did it. It was very successful for a while. It went public and then all of a sudden it didn't work. Was that a fair comparison to make or did you guys lear- take anything that Groupon did and, and learn from it? The member we were marketing to was somebody who was scared to walk into a fitness studio. They didn't know the price of a class. Like, yes, it's good that a lot of people do, but that actually the market we were actually you know creating were people who had really never done this before. We wanted to make sure this was seamless, easy. We were dealing with the excess capacity, not your prime time spots that were going to push out your loyal customers. So that was something we thought about from the beginning. And the other thing we thought about was the lifestyle of it. Recently, you made the tough decision to not give up your baby. You're still very much involved in yeah. fast but you did step away from the CEO role. How did you arrive at that decision? I think founders, like as they go through their company, the founder-CEO role just fundamentally changes. One of the comparisons I always love to make is, you know, dance companies have an artistic director and an executive director, and they're not the same person, right? And I'm, like, a very creative person, and I think about my product from that, like, place of creativity and wanting to, like, improve people's lives. I went to MIT. I worked at Bain. But my magic is actually in my artist side, and I kept feeling like I was pushing away from it. And that's actually what built this company. 
And every single day I was like, I was getting further and further away. You have to build a team to be able to go back to that. And that's like one of my advisors always said, it's like your freedom to create lies in people. I looked around and I was like, who are the folks that I have around me? And Fritz and I have had such a great relationship and I trust him 100%. He knows exactly what I want to build. I don't know if I would make this decision if it was anyone else. And so it's been great. And I mean, he's been such a great partner and I love what I'm doing now. It's got to be still a hard emotional decision to make. This is a role that you're stepping back from when you've had it for years. You've grown this thing from the ground up. The CEO title, there's something that comes with that. The impact we have on people's lives to me is more important than any title anyone can carry. And, you know, the one thing, the only thing, and I thought a lot about this was I want little girls to believe that they can be CEOs. The best thing I could do, though, is be an empowered female and authentically doing what I love. That's the message I want to send, not, oh, go and do things you don't like because that's what the world needs, right? To me, I will be a stronger person if I am moving forward, doing the work I want and and continue to drive force and the purpose that I want to create versus doing what other people think I should be doing, which is never a way to live. What you're saying, too, is that the role of the CEO changes as your company changes. It's very different than when you're starting out to when you have hundreds of people that you're managing. So what were some of the things that that you found that you didn't like? I felt like my day just became a lot of meetings and I wasn't finding time to actually like brainstorm and build my product and sort of think like creatively about what we were building and take those chances on innovation And I knew I was like the lifeline to that, if that made sense. I wanted to free myself up to do it. What are you doing now day to day? Yeah. Um, What's the role of executive chairman? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it varies for every executive chairman that's out there. I think as founder, for me, it's about focusing on the product and the member experience. So we just launched some really cool stuff. Now you can go back to studios, you know, at like a small premium. There's a video product that we just launched and that I'm continuously focused on and what we're going to be doing on like the digital era, which is so unbelievable and growing right now. Just how, you know, we were just talking about this, how digital and video is becoming such a prominent part of people's lives. And it's just, you know, I think there's a really great big fitness angle and a platform angle for ClassPass to have there. Are you going to stick cameras in studios and let people stream it at home or what kind of videos? We're exploring a lot of things. I think the number one thing I would say is our vision is to make that studio experience come to your home right? Because it's really important. We know how great these studios are and not everyone can access them. You know, I think this is a part of like who we've always been. It's like great for the New Yorker who's next to five like bar studios and two spin places. But what about someone who's in the middle of Idaho? Mm -hmm. They can't do it. As really a first time tech founder, what were you surprised to learn and what was the hardest part? Some of the things that I've fallen in love with, which I wasn't expecting, were things like UX and design, you know, and I actually think it's such a new field that five years ago, I don't think people were like studying like user experience, right? I think it's so cool that like we have to now like think about like what's going on on the screen, like every inch of it kind of matters. So that's been really just like interesting for me as like a founder to kind of dive into. I think being in New York and like building a company here was a complete interesting learning lesson and To be honest, to see the New York tech scene completely change and transform over these five years, I couldn't count, like, the number of entrepreneurs I knew on my one hand five years ago, right? Like, now it's, like, unbelievable at how many, like, people there are and everyone's working at startups. That was Pyle Kadakia, the founder of ClassPass. Thanks so much for joining us, and you can listen to more episodes of Success, How I Did It on Acast or iTunes.